Before we get started, I just want to remind you that support for The Morning Agenda comes from Everance Financial, empowering members to align their investments with their faith and values. Learn more at everance.com slash centralpen. Securities offered through Concourse Financial Group Securities, Inc., member FINRA and SIPC. Will there be six more weeks of winter or not? What say you, Phil? Welcome to The Morning Agenda, WITF's daily news podcast, where the only agenda is you. Good morning to you. It is Friday, February 2nd, Groundhog Day in Pennsylvania and across the country, and this is being recorded at 9.22 a.m. I'm your host, Tim Lambert, as we take this daily trip around the region's top stories together. We're going to start off today with a little fun. It's Friday, so let's talk about perhaps the most Pennsylvania of Pennsylvania things, Punxsutawney Phil. People from outside the state always seemed a bit shocked to find out just how many people gather at Gobbler's Knob in Punxsutawney for a glimpse of Phil and how the event is comparable to a huge tailgate party at any football game at any level. Well, another huge crowd gathered in western Pennsylvania this morning to see if Phil would see his shadow or not. Now, the folklore goes something like this. If he sees his shadow, there will be six more weeks of winter. If he doesn't, spring comes early. So without further ado... Another winter slumbered pause so I could meet the crowd. Hard to sleep anyway when the party's this loud. I envy your energy. I envy the fun. I envy all of you and your opposable thumbs. But it's not what I feel, it's what I see and what you hear. So gather round and let me be clear. Atmosphere is a wonderful thing. And we can create our own and the weather it brings. It brings hope for the future and so much more. Maybe some Punxsutawney Phil write-in votes in 2024. But what this weather did not provide is a shadow or reason to hide. Glad tidings on this Groundhog Day. An early spring is on the way. Now, the annual event in Punxsutawney originated from a German legend about a furry rodent. And I just got to say, my phone and email lit up with alerts about Phil's prediction. Now, the question is, is this really breaking news? Heck yeah, it is. I mean, I'm leading today's episode with it. I say it like this. You care about it. I care about it. It's something fun in the middle of winter. It's also one of only a handful of things I can think of that brings the entire state together. No boundaries, no regional loyalties, no loyalties to sports teams. Just Phil. All right, on to the serious news. Governor Josh Shapiro's second budget address is Tuesday, and it could lay the groundwork for the coming year for the administration and state policy. WITF's Ben Wasserstein reports the administration will have a sharp focus on education-related issues. Last year's budget negotiations were marred by the inclusion of a $100 million school voucher program that was supported by Shapiro and the Senate GOP, but opposed by House Democrats. Some Democrats argued the program would funnel money away from public schools whose system of funding was found to be so bad that it violates the state constitution. 
That system was later reviewed by the Basic Education Funding Commission, which agreed the system requires a multi-billion dollar revamp. Democratic House Appropriations Chair Jordan Harris of Philadelphia says with the commission's work, fixing the education system will be a priority. We now have a roadmap, a roadmap to what we should be doing and talking about with regards to education funding for our schools. If education is the true equalizer, then we're going to have to actually fund it as such. That audio is courtesy of PCN-TV. Now, Shapiro will also detail the state's first economic development strategy in nearly two decades. Pennsylvania immigrants have a new option for paying their legal fees. My colleague Gabriela Martinez reports a nonprofit lender has expanded its national immigration lending program to the Commonwealth. Capital Good Fund, a Rhode Island-based nonprofit, offers loans of up to $20,000 to immigrants who can't afford an attorney. CEO Andrew Posner says these loans can cover a wide variety of legal services. It covers all of the costs associated with any type of immigration case. That can be the legal fees, government filing fees, travel, medical exams, biometrics, and so on. So it's really comprehensive. Now, the fund partnered with the American Immigration Lawyers Association to make sure attorneys assigned to a case are vetted and reputable. The loans have an interest rate of 15.99 percent and do not require people to have credit history. According to Posner, Capital Good Fund immigration loans have a 96 percent repayment rate. State lawmakers are trying to create a purple alert system to help find people with intellectual disabilities who have gone missing. There are two versions of the bill at this point, one for the House and another for the Senate. Democratic Representative Jessica Benham of Allegheny County says the alerts would function much like Amber Alerts, but for a wider age range and only for those with intellectual disabilities. For an Amber Alert, you have to be under the age of 17. And so it, for, for this, it can be adults with disabilities as well. Now, other states have introduced similar systems. In its first year in Florida, 250 people were found out of 255 alerts. And when two Native American boys from Nebraska died after being taken to the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Cumberland County, they were buried without notice. The Winnebago tribe wants the boys back home. But so far, the Army has refused to return the remains of Samuel Gilbert and Edward Hensley. A federal lawsuit says the Army is ignoring a 1990 law aimed at expediting the return of the deceased to Native American lands. Samuel had been at the school in Carlisle for just 47 days when he died in 1895. Edward spent four years at the school before passing away in 1899. On this Friday morning, I went through about a dozen news sites across central Pennsylvania, checking for some stories to pass along to you. Came across a couple, so here they are. The board president of the Octorora Area School District has been killed in a plane crash in Chester County. Our sister newsroom, LNP Lancaster Online, reports Sam Gano of Cochranville was aboard a GA-7 Cougar aircraft that went down around 1.30 yesterday afternoon in a yard near a house about six miles east of Gap. Gano was the only person on board when the plane went down just minutes after taking off from Chester County Airport in Coatesville. The Federal Aviation Administration is investigating the crash. And state courts in Pennsylvania must allow people on probation to take medication for opioid withdrawal as part of a Justice Department settlement. Several plaintiffs say they suffered withdrawal rather than test positive and be sent back to prison. Lawyer Sally Friedman of the Legal Action Center in York represented them. She says the loss of medication can be life-threatening. 
Now, the settlement mandates training for judges and court personnel involved in court-ordered supervision, and the plaintiffs will also share in a $100,000 settlement. Now, all week we have been taking deep dives as we look back at the toxic train derailment near the Ohio-Pennsylvania border that occurred nearly a year ago. In fact, tomorrow is the one-year anniversary. So let's continue looking at the ramifications and its impact. In the weeks following the Norfolk Southern crash, doctors and health leaders were trying to figure out how to help people who reported being sick. Julie Grant, with our partners at the Allegheny Front, based in Pittsburgh, takes a look now at what they did and didn't do and how their decisions could have long-term consequences for the community of East Palestine, Ohio. After the train derailment and chemical burn in East Palestine, Dr. Gretchen Nickel, chief medical officer at East Liverpool City Hospital, about 20 miles south, started seeing patients with physical ailments that could be from chemical exposures. So when I have patients that say, I've got a skin rash, I've got dermatitis, I'm having a hard time breathing, I'm diagnosing them with a pneumonitis, um, eyes, ears, nose, throat, throat irritation, Nickel declined an interview. This is her speaking at a workshop held by the National Academies of Sciences in November. She says she wasn't sure what to tell people. And knowing that we had VOCs and vinyl chloride, what, if any kind of testing, should we be doing? Many health officials were asking that same question, whether they should do urine and blood testing for residents exposed to chemicals in the derailment. They did get guidance from the Centers for Disease Control, but there was political wrangling between the state and federal governments, and it took two weeks for Ohio Governor Mike DeWine to request support from the CDC. By the time CDC and its Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, the ATSDR, arrived in East Palestine, people in the affected area were past the point of acute chemical exposure. If you have questions during the presentation, please put them into the chat. The Pennsylvania Department of Health offered a webinar for medical providers in late February. Dr. Mike Lynch, medical director of the Pittsburgh Poison Center, told area doctors that blood tests were not reliable, not clinically useful, and not recommended for patients. So yes, with confidence, you can tell them that there is not a chemical test that they should be seeking either from you or elsewhere at this time that can help prove or disprove exposure or would help with diagnosis, treatment, or prognosis from any of these potential exposures. Lynch said there shouldn't be any additional exposures since environmental monitoring by the EPA showed that chemicals in the air and water were at safe levels. The CDC did not respond to requests for an interview, but several experts we spoke with who focus on public health and research say this advice not to do widespread biological testing was a loss for the community. Dr. Maureen Lichtfeld used to work at ATSDR and was on the ground after the attacks on September 11th and the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. She's now dean of the Graduate School of Public Health at the University of Pittsburgh. Lichtfeld says one key to a better public health response is to gather as much biological data as possible from people who might have been exposed to chemicals. This means getting samples of their breath, blood, or urine. So if we're not quick enough or early enough to capture that, we're losing the opportunity to measure directly what's happening in the people. Lickfeld says the federal government has protocols for a public health response that includes this kind of testing. And Ohio's two senators, Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance, called for biological testing in a letter they wrote to health agencies in late February. 
Glenn Talaska's opinion was included in that letter. He's Professor Emeritus in Environmental and Public Health Sciences at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. Talaska says emergency responders could easily be trained to take biological samples during that early exposure period. What I would like to see would be for taking urine samples from individuals. You don't even have to know what the chemicals are. Take the urine samples, store them properly, and then when you find out what the chemicals are, then you could do the analysis for it. But the Ohio Department of Health says the state's new training initiative for first responders does not include biological sampling. ATSDR did do an assessment of chemical exposures called an ACE survey of 700 Ohio and Pennsylvania residents looking at health symptoms. At a meeting at a local church months later, the agency's Jill Shugart shared the findings. They had headaches, coughing, difficulty breathing, stuffy nose or sinus congestion, and burning nose or throat. One mother in the pew said her daughter was still vomiting daily since the derailment. You're, You're absolutely right. She and other concerned residents had results of urine testing that showed the markers for vinyl chloride in their bodies, and they had questions. CDC toxicologist Arthur Chang told them those tests are often incorrect. Instead of blood or urine sampling, he advised them to carefully track their health with a medical provider in case they develop cancer. So that's the reason why we're saying go to your doctor so that you can get examined and get the proper test. We know how to treat angiosarcoma. We may not know how to treat, get rid of vital chloride from the body, but we know how to treat those cancers. My jaw dropped. Juja Jenis couldn't believe what the CDC was saying. She moved away from East Palestine after the derailment, but brought the results of her nine-year-old son's urine test from April, showing the markers for vinyl chloride. I looked around the room. I was like, did I just hear that, that right? And like literally, like they came in and said these ACE surveys showed that you guys are sick, and yeah, the symptoms match chemical exposure, and then we're just not doing anything about it. The CDC apologized to residents for what they're experiencing and said there's no treatment for chemicals in the body and that there's really nothing they could do. Some researchers are working on small health studies, trying new methods to measure chemicals in people's blood and tracking the health of a cohort in the community. The National Academies convened public health experts last fall to identify future research in East Palestine. But that's not the same as a coordinated emergency response, according to Molly Jacobs. She's an environmental epidemiologist at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell and works with the Cancer and Environment Network of Southwestern Pennsylvania. Jacobs says without early biological testing and a health registry, companies like Norfolk Southern can dodge long-term responsibility for the damage they've caused. What it does is that the industry has the opportunity to say, look, You know, nobody can find any conclusive connection um, between health effects and what happened. They can wipe their hands clean of that because we don't have the right tools in place to make those connections if they're there. Next time a chemical disaster happens, these experts want emergency responders and health officials to be trained to manage not only the immediate medical issues, but also to look out for a community's long-term health interests. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Julie Grant. This story is supported by the Fund for Investigative Journalism. Well, as we start to wrap things up, just a reminder that The Morning Agenda is available anywhere you find your favorite podcasts on WITF's YouTube channel, which you can subscribe to, and of course, the NPR One app. 
And be sure to check out our monthly Spotify playlist. This month's is called The Morning Agenda Song of the Day, February 2024. And today's Song of the Day is Lose Yourself by Eminem. A big thanks once again to Everance Financial for supporting The Morning Agenda, empowering members to align their investments with their faith and values. Learn more at everance.com slash centralpen. Securities offered through Concourse Financial Group Securities, Inc., member FINRA and SIPC. And that is going to do it for The Morning Agenda. It's a daily news podcast from WITF where the only agenda is you. I'm your host, Tim Lambert. Thank you so much for listening today. Be well, enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again on Monday.